0: You're listening to the Judicial Watch Weekly Update with Tom Fitton. Hey, everyone. Judicial Watch President Tom Fitton here with our weekly update on social media. Thanks for joining us this week. A great week for Judicial Watch and the rule of law and election integrity. Big victory against a, uh, really, in my view, a uh, election rigging scheme in Maryland. Gerrymandering. The gerrymandering effort has been thrown out by a court thanks to a Judicial Watch lawsuit, I'll talk about that. Another big victory on behalf of a federal court judge who was being unfairly targeted for, frankly, doing the right thing, And I'll talk about that. Plus we have three, not one, not two, but three lawsuits about the vaccines and COVID and such. And um, I've got some documents that I can tell you about. And plus, uh, obviously the lawsuits I'm gonna talk about as well. And then finally is uh, the big news this week in DC, in politics, which is the confirmation hearings of uh, Judge Jackson, President Biden's Supreme Court nominee. Um, I thought the hearings were a disaster and I'll tell you why, so stay tuned. But first up, is our major victory on behalf of the rule of law and election integrity in maryland uh... where we challenged on behalf of voters in maryland the gerrymandered map of congressional districts created by the democratic legislature there we had a trial on our challenge it was a challenge under the constitution of maryland and declaration of rights uh... and we won the court just announced today issued a big ruling here this is the ruling 94 pages, memorandum, memorandum, opinion and order in the Circuit Court for Anne Arundel County, which is a um, uh, the county uh, out west in Maryland. Uh, the trial occurred in Annapolis, Maryland, the, the state capital. We had experts, the other side experts, the state had experts, and uh, there were two challenges, uh, two groups of challengers, and Judicial Watch represented plaintiffs, including a a state delegate in Maryland, uh, Neil Parrott, and voters in every district in Maryland and there was another set of plaintiffs who also objected and the court ruled in our favor it called it an extreme gerrymander uh, that violated the rights of Republicans under the Constitution so this is the background on the story so Larry Hogan which is a uh, who is a, um, a Republican governor of Maryland uh, had a citizens Commission draw up a map that, uh, the left didn't like, and Democrats in the state legislature didn't like. So what happened is they drew up their own map and they passed it in the legislature uh, without any Republican votes and the map essentially, and I think we'll probably pop up the map during the discussion, you'll see how awful it is, Uh, they created a map that uh, essentially would lead to no Republicans being elected in the House of Representatives. And the way you gerrymander maps is you kind of, you you jigger the lines in a way uh, to make sure that there are enough members of people who are likely to vote for candidates of your choice. If you're a Democrat, you do it the Democrat way. If you're a Republican, you do it the Republican way. And to a certain extent, that's okay in our political system. But when you cross the line and abuse the rule of law, and uh, destroy any sense of normalcy in the political process where you've got these maps that go throughout the state and and look like uh, dead birds in the middle of the state and uh, connect, for instance, in uh, Western Maryland, uh, one of the key districts is connected by uh, if you' if you've been around Maryland you'll know uh, that uh, to get to the eastern shore which is uh, you know the beaches and the, and the uh, that area of of Maryland you have to cross something called the Chesa- Chesapeake Bay bridge which is a tremendous feat of engineering miles long and that's how they connect the district in in Maryland, I mean, it's 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 like being in another country, practically speaking. Uh, the way the districts have been set up the, from one part of the state to another, a complete abuse, and everyone recognizes it to be a partisan abuse. And uh, the Democrats and the state have decided decided that the, no one can just allow the challenge yet under the state constitution. And we said we are. And what happened was, as I said, the Democrats passed the map. Uh, Hogan vetoed it. They overrode the veto, the veto. and uh, so the challenge uh, went forward in in the in the court, uh, the state court in Maryland, and we won. The court found, and I'm going to read from the court the decision here. This is this is the decision. It's well worth reading in, in toto. I don't know how the court got out a 95-page, 94-page decision in less than a week, but she managed to get it out. So I'm sure there are a few typos and such in here. One of the key findings of the court, uh, she writes, With regard to Article 7 of the Maryland Declaration of Rights, the plaintiffs, based upon the evidence adduced at trial, prove that the 2021 plan was drawn with partisanship as a predominant intent to the exclusion of traditional redistricting criteria by the party in power, the Democrats, to suppress the voice of Republican voters. The right for all to political participation in congressional elections was violated by the twenty twenty-one plan. As a result, this court will enter a declaratory judgment in favor of the plaintiffs, declaring the twenty twenty-one plan unconstitutional and permanently enjoining its operation, and giving the general assembly and giving the general assembly, which is the legislature, state legislature of Maryland, an opportunity to develop a new congressional plan that is constitutional a separate declaratory judgment will be entered. So um, this is just great. And this judge, by the way, uh, she, she's not a Trump appointee. She's not a Hogan appointee. She's, As far as I can tell, uh, she's a Democrat. She was appointed by uh, Democrats um, in, in Maryland, and she saw right through this that this was an extreme, and she uses the language, extreme gerrymander. And this is uh, one of the worst gerrymanders in the country. And uh, it's very rare that state gerrymanders such as this or congressional districts such as, the congressional district maps such as this are thrown out. And as best we can tell, certainly in the modern era, I think this is only the fifth time it's happened. And you know the left likes to make make it uh, make it seem like oh only Republicans engage in partisan gerrymandering, or they usually play the race card, which is um, which is not true, uh, which is usually not true, uh, and suggest the Republicans are, are 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 racist in how they gerrymander as opposed to just being partisan. Uh, but here uh, the uh, the Democrats were caught with their hand in the cookie jar, and. Gerrymandering is, you know, maybe it's a technical term, but one way to think about it is you have the party in power trying to rig elections by improperly in this case, uh, keeping voters in jurisdictions in a way to guarantee certain politicians will be elected, uh, mainly politicians of the Democrat Party and as i have i said before there's nothing wrong with doing that if you're in power in a in a modest way you know kind of you know you've got some flexibility you're keeping the maps compact and relatively distinct in terms of making sure that there's no unlawful uh uh, where where counties and towns and localities are kind of torn apart for the purposes of redistricting, and you got a little give and take, you keep you know some members of your party, you know you you met you make it work for members of your party, but then there's an abuse, and you see that in the Maryland map, and it was so extreme uh, that this uh, Maryland court judge says you got to go back to the drawing board. So what happens next? uh... it's a little bit unclear uh... it looks like they have five days to appeal and they could go straight to the maryland's highest court we'll see what happens but i I think uh... it's looking good uh... this is one of the most notorious partisan gerrymanders in the country and uh... it's no doubt it doesn't provide fair and effective representation for all citizens and uh... it violates the, uh, the Constitution of Maryland. It's now official, there's a court that found that it violated the Constitution of, uh, Constitution of Maryland. And Judicial Watch has been at this game for a long time in terms of trying to get the courts to look at these uh, uh, improper gerrymanders. And to be fair, Republicans do it too they sometimes engage in abusive partisan gerrymandering. I mean, it's a temptation, especially if the courts are unwilling to police it, as the, uh, certainly in this case, the state constitution allows them to do. I mean, in, in, in Maryland, for instance, uh, Republicans accounted for 35% of congressional votes. But under this map, they wouldn't have been able, practically speaking, to elect any rep- one representative. I mean, how is that appropriate under, under the Constitution of Maryland, you know, that requires uh, voters to have a fair chance to participate in our election process? So this isn't even a federal constitutional fight. This is the state constitution, which has these broad protections that seem to prohibit this partisan gerrymandering. Indeed, the court suggested um, and, and agreed with us on that. And so we've been fighting this for years. Our lead lawyer and our election team, uh, our lead lawyer is Bob Popper, Russ Nobile was on the team, and, uh, and Eric Lee of our, um, of, our, uh, of our attorney staff as well. Uh, they all worked hard on this, so they deserve great congratulations. So I, the wonderful thing about this, the work I do, at least in these updates, is I get to come on and talk about all the other great work My colleagues here do a Judicial Watch. And of course, you know, our clients came forward and did this. You know, and you know what happens when you're challenged left, they come after you. Uh, So we're grateful for our clients coming forward and Delegate Parrott uh, uh, taking some leadership on this as our client. And as I said, it's not a partisan issue. The uh, Judicial Watch, uh, Bob Popper, who is our lead attorney, he testified, as I told you a few weeks ago, in Florida. Uh, Ron DeSantis, uh, his people knew that Popper was an expert on these areas, and he came down and testified against a c- gerrymandered district that was racist, but took a whole bunch of black voters and stuck them up in North Florida in an obviously gerrymandered map that went across the state, this top of Mer- uh, Florida like this, from Tallahassee, I think all the way to Jacksonville, as I recall, and uh, you know, Bob pointed out that you, you can't do that. You just can't stick voters in districts based on race in, a, in, a, in, a, uh, in, in this uh, improper way. And the Republicans wanted to do it. The Democrats wanted to do it. And DeSantis said, no, we're not doing it. So this was a Republican fight. And Judicial Watch took the side of, in our view, the rule of law here against the Republicans in the Florida legislature. And they didn't like that, you believe me? (laughs) They didn't like that at all, I can tell you that. This is just great work, and it's just one element of Judicial Watch's uh, significant election integrity efforts. On our side of the philosophical divide, which is a divide, frankly, on which 80 to 85% of the American people are on, Judicial Watch is the leader. For election integrity. Uh, there's no one else out there doing these challenges like judicial watches on gerrymandering, educating legislators, educating Congress, going to court to successfully clean up voter rolls throughout the nation in California, Ohio, Indiana, Florida, Kentucky, Maryland, Illinois, North Carolina, Colorado, Pennsylvania, We could be in Oregon. We could be in New York soon. Plenty of other places who I'm sure I'm forgetting. But the point is, we're cleaning up the rolls. We're defending voter ID in court. We're suing corrupt legislators who are abusing their power to try to rig the game of elections on behalf of their party in a way that punishes their fellow citizens in in various states. That's called gerrymandering. No one else does it. No one's doing the kind of the broad work that Judicial Watch is doing like that. And now there are some great other groups on our side who are doing some of that work. Uh, but uh, Judicial Watch is, is the 900-pound uh, the gorilla in this, in this area. And the left knows that and they hate us. They're targeting us because of it. So you have these Soros operations coming in to try to intervene in our cases. Uh, we get harassed uh, by uh, Democrat front groups. We get harassed by the ACLU. We get targeted by the left-wing media. But we are not gonna back down when it comes to cleaning elections, to, to clean elections. We're not gonna back down. So more lawsuits to come. We're gonna keep on fighting through the appeals process in Maryland. Uh, but I tell you, we're gonna lose our republic if we don't have clean and fair elections. And the left has decided they do not support clean and fair elections. And so we need to stand against that. And that's what we're doing, so a great victory. And of course, I thanked our lawyers, I thanked our clients, but I want to thank you, our supporters, because we're able to do this work and be in court for fair and clean elections to defend our republic because of supporters like you. And if you're not supporting us, you see what we're able to do with the support we currently get and I encourage you to join our cause, join our movement and join Judicial Watch. So, we hold Congress accountable, we hold the executive branch accountable, and we're Judicial Watch. We hold the judiciary accountable. And Judicial Watch had a big victory in uh, Uh, against what's called the Sixth Circuit Judicial Council on behalf of a federal court judge who uh, was punished, punished, as I said, for doing the right thing. Now the Sixth Circuit is um, essentially the the vehicle for judicial discipline in the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit, which, which governs in part Ohio. And uh, we announced today that there was a settlement of an historic lawsuit that we had filed, uh, and in that settlement, the Sixth Circuit Judicial Council is vacating an unprecedented and, as we say, a clearly unwarranted order by a disciplinary panel that found US District Court Judge John R. Adams, our client, committed misconduct by objecting to undergoing a psychiatric examination and ordered him to submit to the examination. By the way, so I want you to I want you to think about that. They told him for really no good reason, and I'm summarizing here, you need to undergo a psychiatric examination. We don't like the way you're we don't like what you're saying and doing. And what he was doing was enforcing the law and complaining about misspent funds, but I'll get into that. And they said, you have to go undergo a psychiatric examination. And he said, no, I don't, and I won't. And they said he committed misconduct by objecting to go- undergoing a psychiatric examination. When we talk about Alice in Wonderland reasoning, from our courts. So this is a lawsuit that's been out there a bit of a long period of time, relatively speaking. In September 2017, Judicial Watch filed a federal lawsuit challenging the discipline on behalf of Judge Adams, and he's based in Akron, Ohio. Uh, the Sixth Circuit oversees, and I said, and here's appeals from the federal trial courts in Ohio, Michigan, Kentucky, and Tennessee. So it's an important circuit on august 14 2017 the committee on judicial conduct and disability the judicial conference of the united states upheld an administrative ruling by the sixth circuit uh uh, judicial council finding that judge adams committed misconduct when he issued a show cause order to a magistrate judge who missed a deadline in a social security benefits case Adams had long been concerned about the efficient use and supervision of his court's magistrates and the timeliness of magistrates' decisions, particularly in Social Security cases. To reduce delays in such cases, he began issuing orders, setting deadlines for magistrates' reports and recommendations, and which are analysis, analyses by magistrates how a judge should rule. Now, if you've had any experience with pursuing Social Security claims into the courts, it takes forever and a day. And Judge Adams thinks that's not right. Magistrates work for the courts, and Judge Adams was demanding accountability from them. Well, the magistrates, of course, didn't like the accountability and resisted Judge Adams' efforts. And when one magistrate missed the deadline, he issued a show cause order. What's a show cause order? It's like, tell me why I shouldn't hold you in contempt. Explain to me what you did. After the magistrate explained that the missed deadline resulted from a calendar, uh, just a simple calendaring error, he got the schedule screwed up a little bit. He accepted the explanation and placed both the order and the explanation under seal. So he removed it from the record, uh, practically speaking, at least the public record. But some of judges, uh, Judge Adams' um, colleagues on the bench, uh, which is the Ohio Federal District Court there, filed an ethics complaint complaining, claiming that Judge Adams' deadlines and show cause order caused the magistrates to give priority to his cases over theirs. Of course... They should have asked themselves, why weren't they policing the magistrates the way Judge Adams was, on behalf of those who uh, citizens who were demanding and expecting timely justice from the courts. As a result, Judge Adams was subjected to a years-long ethics investigation, so vengeful and vitriolic, that even his mental health was questioned. Despite the complete absence of any medical evidence suggesting he suffered from mental disability, he was ordered to undergo a psychiatric examination, including a three-hour battery of psychological testing. When he objected, as I said, he was accused of undermining the investigation. So they're abusing him. He objects to the abuse and they accuse, they say your objection is evidence of misconduct or misconduct in and of itself. But of course, it wasn't just social security appeals the judges were upset about. Judge Adams also had spoken out numerous times about the court's wasteful use of taxpayer dollars, such as spending thousands of dollars to purchase iPads for judges and other court staff while simultaneously threatening cutbacks and and furloughs for essential staff, such as probation officers. You know, the court employees that help keep the public safe by monitoring criminals. He also questioned reimbursing judges for travel expenses incurred attending ceremonial portrait unveilings of their colleagues. Think about that. Now if you've ever been in federal courthouses, you'll see lots of paintings of judges. And I'm, I don't necessarily object to that. Uh, but. What Judge Adams objected to was taxpayers spending money sending judges uh, for the unveiling of these these projects uh, or these portraits. So that gets under the skin, obviously, of some of his colleagues who, you know, I guess expect the judge, Judge Adams, to keep quiet about things that he objects to in terms of waste, potential waste of taxpayer resources. Now, of course, no case has ever been decided in which a judge was forced to undergo a psychiatric evaluation. So this is quite the case and a very interesting one. But the Committee on Judicial Conduct and Disability, the Judicial Conference of the United States, which is like you know you think uh, so think of all these various circuits have these judicial councils which are supposed to police the ethics of of federal judges Uh, then above them is the uh, uh, the super committee is for one of a better way of putting it the full Committee on Judicial Conduct and Disability which you know is above all the other districts and it's based here in Washington DC and they found that was misconduct for Judge Adams to object to his unprecedented, to this unprecedented demand for a psychiatric evaluation. It also ordered him to endure two years of monitoring by a judicial committee and threatened to reassign his current caseload and ban him from being assigned new cases. You know, he's a federal court judge, constitutional judge, and they don't have a right in our view, to mess with a federal official like this. No one voted to give them that power. After over four years of federal litigation, including an appeal, the Judicial Council gave up and they finally agreed to vacate the unprecedented orders targeting uh, Judge Adams. And so this is quite the case, isn't it? So did you know, and I'm sure you didn't, Uh, That Judicial Watch represents a federal court judge in a case against, uh, in our view, the abuse and corruption of other federal court uh, judges. Basically, here, the bureaucracy being misused uh, to go after him. And the courts aren't above the law, and we're willing to go to court to sue the courts. Judge Adams is a fine jurist committed to the highest standards of judicial ethics and has served with distinction for over 19 years. No other federal judge should ever have to go through what Judge Adams went through. That the bureaucracy of the federal judiciary retreated from his abuse of him is a remarkable victory for the rule of law and our constitutional system. So, um, you know, Judge Adams is a great judge. He's the type of judge you want on the bench. He. Uh, takes his job seriously. He realizes that he's a steward of the public interest as a judge, and was willing to go to bat for that, and he was punished for it by the courts. And again, uh, and you can imagine how tough it is because you know you can imagine the pressure he's getting, and some people would just give in. And he said, no, I'm not gonna give in. I'm gonna fight. I'm gonna fight. And remember, these courts, you know, they're 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 hothouses. I mean, they are everyone knows each other, so uh, this is not a pleasant thing to have to do. But of course they were improperly targeting him, so he stood up for his rights, his constitutional rights, as a citizen and a federal court judge. And because judicial watch. Uh, was uh, willing to push and push and push on this, uh, they backed down finally. You know, the irony is, and I'll use this as a segue uh, uh, to the next discussion, is that uh, the last appeal was before three judges in the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit. One of those judges was Judge Jackson. So I get to listen to Judge Jackson Uh, at least consider this case, and and I don't think they've ruled, and I don't think they probably will rule since we ended the case, uh, but she was even skeptical of this. So isn't that interesting? So this is what I love about Judicial Watch. We sue Congress, we sue the executive branch, we sue state legislatures, we sue all sorts of government officials to hold them accountable to the rule of law, and we sue the judges, where and when appropriate. We respect the judiciary, we obviously rely on our court system uh, to achieve um, results on behalf of the American people in terms of accountability and respect for the rule of law and enforcing the rule of law, but that respect means ensuring that that court system abides by the rules that everyone else is supposed to abide in terms of treating people uh, appropriately under our constitutional system. I mean, our court system is, and our rule of law system, I'm convinced, is the best in the world. It's not perfect. Uh, it's frustratingly slow sometimes, but I'm sure everyone thinks that way. Uh, but uh, our system of governance, as it relates to the judiciary, it needs significant reform in terms of activist ju- judges and things like that. But the ability to go to court is. Um, and generally get a hearing is something that is a precious right we have here in the United States, a right not afforded to many others. And uh, and we're gonna protect that right by making sure the judiciary is the best it can be. Uh, next up, uh, before I get into our COVID cases, I wanna talk about uh, Judge Jackson's nomination. Uh, she had her Senate confirmation hearings this week And I I don't know if you watched them. I personally thought they were a disaster for her. I thought, and I knew she was an extremist. She was an activist on the bench. She was an activist off the bench uh and uh during her hearings she said essentially that she's an originalist which of course now all judges say at the federal level which i guess is a, a, at least a victory for those of us who believe in the rule of law and that judges should apply the law and not make it up as they go along and politicize it but you know that's something all judges have to say nowadays because uh uh, to kind of come out and say that, well, you know, I, I believe I should be able to apply the law as I see fit, no matter what the Constitution says. Uh, that doesn't even pass muster, even for uh, many Democrats these days. Now, the issue of uh, that came up that I was kind of vaguely aware of beforehand, but didn't realize until the hearings. And this kind of shows the value sometimes of having these hearings. Is that her her activism to uh, obtain? Uh, more lenient uh, 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 sentences for pedophiles. It's incredible. Now, the left has tried to do fact checks and debunking of what she was doing, uh, in, both as a member of the Sentencing Commission for the United States, and then later as a federal court judge in terms of actually imposing sentences. But they are what they are. And I encourage you to go back and look at her answers and responses to those questions. And it was disturbing. I mean, she clearly has a different approach, I think, than most Americans uh, to uh, sentences uh, for pedophiles. I mean, she seems to think that because there's an easy availability of these images on the Internet, that those who engage and uh, view pe- uh, this type of material on the Internet uh, should be treated less severely than those who used to get it through the mail or other ways. I mean, it's, I, it's disturbing. Now, does it mean that she's in favor of child pornography or she support, no, it does not. But it means she has this uh, approach to the rule of law and criminal penalties that's way to the left of the mainstream and really extreme to the left of the mainstream. And uh, there's no denying that. And uh, I don't think it's coincidental that you saw these outrageous attacks on Clarence Thomas and his wife Ginny Thomas this week through leaks from the January 6th committee of text messages of Ginny Thomas uh, expressing worries to the chief of staff of Donald Trump, Mark Meadows, uh, about the way the 2020 election was handled, which is her fundamental right as a citizen to do. And they're trying to, you know, as you know, you're not allowed to criticize the 2020 election. The left thinks that that's, ought to be illegal and you should be jailed for doing that. And I'm not exaggerating, I'm, I'm, I'm slightly exaggerating, but unfortunately not that much. Because that's how, in my view, that was designed to distract from the fact that uh, Judge Jackson, uh, who also was unwilling to define what a woman meant. So I'm not a biologist. Well, I'm not a biologist, I know what a woman is. Do you know what a woman is? But we now have a federal court judge who, by all count, will get on the Supreme Court, who's unwilling to define what a woman is. Now, what does that mean when she talks like that? It means, in my view, she is a furthering and very much aware of the radical transgender agenda, where uh, anyone can be, uh, you know, where you, uh, you have individuals who born a male uh, then define themselves as female. And as you know, there's a big legal debate on that. Now, what she could have said is that, look, I know why you're asking me that. And I have a feeling this is going to come up in the courts and I'm not going to play the game. But instead, she said, I, I can't define what a woman is because I'm not a biologist. Of course. I mean, that's just, to me, a disingenuous answer. And uh, it further highlights, um, if, I could, uh, if you could bear with me as I make a broader point, is that this whole attack on, on, on the, the, the reality-based definition of women, as part of this transgender uh, extremist agenda, is one, in my view, that will lead to the unraveling of our anti discrimination protections for women. How is it you can enforce the law to protect women from discrimination if you have trouble defining what a woman is? I mean, that's where this is leading to. And to me, that's, that's kind of a, a real extremism. And you know, it's one thing then to kind of know you, know, you know, given her background and her general activism and the way she's ruled in certain cases, that she was a, kind of a, a liberal activist. But to see her kind of embrace some of that in person in the, in, in the hearings, uh, to me, was quite extraordinary. Now, of course, the Republicans have long been planning to lose this nomination fight. You know, in a 50-50 Senate, there are ways that Republicans can effectively uh, shut down this nomination or any confirmation of a, a appointee for the uh, uh, by the president. But they decided not to, and because they decided not to, I'm not going to I'm not going to belabor that. But just so you know, every Republican. And there will be some who vote for her and every Democrat who votes for her should be held accountable for voting for someone who has a soft on crime approach to uh, uh, pedophiles who is uh, quite evidently someone likely to support abortion on demand as enforced by the Supreme Court, meaning that no states can do anything to protect unborn lives throughout the entire nine months of pregnancy. The Uh, It's pretty clear based on her answers. she doesn't think much of the Second Amendment. She was asked if she thought there was a Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms. And she said that's what the Supreme Court has ruled. Well, that's the type of answer you give when you don't agree with the way the Supreme Court has ruled. And uh, and then, of course, you've got the CRT-laden philosophy. Uh, behind how I can't define women and it's you know that's critical theory it's critical race theory is repackaged Marxism there's different flavors of it you have critical fem- feminist theory uh, critical, critical queer theory is what they call it uh, the LGBT type of uh, uh, Marxist analysis and uh, she's obviously well versed in it and she knows what to say so as not to offend people who are well versed in it One of the other interesting things I learned about her, and I didn't know this before the confirmation hearings, is that she's on the board of trustees for Georgetown Day School. And Georgetown Day School is a well-known private school here in Washington, D.C. that is radical. It has this progressive, extreme, Marxist agenda throughout all its curriculum. CRT all over the place. From first grade through high school. And she's at the board of trustees for it. So this is the type of judge who could be on the Supreme Court if the, if the Senate nomi- uh, confirms her. Now, uh, Joe Manchin has said that she will he will confirm her, despite all of these issues. I'm sure there will be a Republican or two who support her. So I don't know about you, but I think if people are in the Senate and they object to these folks, they should plan to win as opposed to planning to lose. So it's it takes you have to do more than just say I don't want to vote for this person. You have to think what tools available do I have to to uh, to our to what what. Let me start over. In my view. You have to do more than just say I'm opposed to someone like Judge Jackson, Uh, and you have to say what tool, you you really have to say is, well, I'm opposed to her, and I want to actually defeat the nomination, and what tools do I have available to me as a senator under the Constitution and Senate rules, which are uh, designed to really help individual senators stop the Senate from doing anything, to stop Judge Jackson's nomination? And, of course, that's not the way the Republicans are thinking. They think they just need to oppose her and they don't need to work to stop her. Now, not all senators believe that, uh, but certainly the Senate leadership seems to believe that. I mean, for instance, one way I know that's to be the case is the refusal to confront Judge Jackson and ask her about, well, how is it, what did you think about Joe Biden's decision not to uh or, or to specifically exclude people from consideration for this Supreme Court slot based on race and sex? Do you feel comfortable with that? Why didn't you object to it? As a you know, you're obviously a beneficiary of it. Why didn't you object to it? I'm not aware of any Republicans asking her about that, or even asking Joe Biden about it. So I think you should call because that's what they don't want you to do. They don't want to hear from you. They want you to think it's wired and there's nothing you can do. Well, I don't know about you, but you think as a citizen, you should think, well, what is it I can do? I can let them know what I think about Judge Jackson. Call your senators at 202-224-3121 and let them know what you think. There'll probably be a committee vote. I'm not sure if they've scheduled a committee vote yet. My guess is they're going to go on Easter. They'll probably do it by the end. uh, I don't know if they're going to do it next week. I don't know when the Easter break is. But anyway, call your senators. And I know some of you, when I ask you to call your senators to share your views, and I'm not telling you what to say. You're adults. (laughs) You know what to say. Heck, if you support or give your senators a call too, participate in the process. Nothing wrong with that. But call your senators and don't think just because the Republican that you're calling or the Democrat you're calling doesn't agree with you that your call isn't useful and valuable because they take note of who the level of support, the, the volume of calls, even if the call isn't picked up, they take note of how often the phone is ringing. So it does matter and I encourage you to participate. Judge Jackson uh, is the type of nominee who should not be on the Supreme Court of the United States. Her confirmation hearings confirmed that, and uh, no senator, in my view, uh, should vote to confirm her. Next up, as I said, it's been a busy week. Uh, Judicial Watch has filed a series of lawsuits, and we've been filing series of lawsuits to find out the truth about COVID its origins, the policy that resulted in uh, the really destruction for a good period of time of the American economy, the vaccines, the abuses associated with the vaccines, the cover-ups related to China, everything you could think to ask. Judicial Watch has not only been asking about under the Freedom of Information Act, but we've been suing about in federal court. And pretty much everything you know about COVID in terms of what happened with China and things like that is the result of judicial watch FOIA lawsuits. I know it to be the case. I get calls from members of Congress and senators asking for our documents because they don't have them. We have them then we just don't sit on our laurels saying, well, we filed that lawsuit, we can just wait. No, we file additional lawsuits. The American people, for instance, have the fundamental right to know about the safety and efficacy of these vaccines, these COVID vaccines. Now the left media and the deep state health state The Fauci agencies, WHO, you know, we're not allowed to ask questions about the vaccines. All reasonable questions you could ask about any other drug, you're not allowed to ask about the vaccines. And if you do ask the questions, you'll be censored. But we don't back down. We not only ask the questions, we go to court to vindicate our right to know the answers to them. And, uh, and accordingly, we have sued HHS, the Health and Human Services Department, which is the gargantuan agency that overruns or oversees—I guess overruns—maybe a Freudian slip—all these other government agencies that you're more, that you may be familiar with because of COVID: NIH and Fauci's uh, NIAID. I hate using acronyms whenever i'm editing material for judicial watch unless it's like the irs or the fbi something that obviously everyone knows i say don't call these government agencies by their acronyms that's I mean, people in DC hesitate to figure out what all the acronyms mean, let alone uh, uh, people outside of DC. So that's the National Institutes of uh, Allergy and Infectious, Infectious Diseases. So that's Fauci's agency. So we sued HHS for communications about the vaccines. Specifically, their safety. Now, there's been controversy about whether uh, the federal government has been adequately tracking these um, adverse event reports. Now, what are adverse event reports? There's a system in place related to vaccines that encourages encourages people who uh, think they've had an adverse event to, uh, related to a vaccine to report it to the federal government through this reporting system. And doctors can do it, nurses can do it, do it healthcare providers can do it. Doctors can do it, you know, your personal physician, and you can do it. And it doesn't mean you're allowed to, under law, to uh, mess with the system and report something fraudulent. And, and issue fake reports. In fact, you can be prosecuted if you do so. And the government encourages you to do so. Now, if you listen to the left media, they say, oh, no, 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 you, you know, that's, you. stay away from it. Oh, and you can't draw any conclusions from the VARES reporting system. Well, that, I think, is scientifically accurate, and the government says that just because something's on the system doesn't mean there's a causal link. Now, the mirror of that is it doesn't mean there isn't a causal link, but you can't draw a conclusion one way or another. Now, the media wants you to believe, well, you can't draw any conclusions based on what you see in VARES. The other big issue is is VAERS cataloging and capturing all the negative side effects of the vaccines. Now if the vaccines are working and they're doing great things, you know, maybe, you know, this is the risk benefit analysis people have. I mean, to me as citizens, you have a right to look at this database and draw your own conclusions about whether you want to take the vaccine based on what you find. The government, you know, the big left media operations don't believe that. I do. I don't know, I guess I believe in freedom. Small little thing like that. So essentially we sued the FDA, now which is also under HHS. And this is what we asked for. All, email, excuse me, all emails sent to and from members of the Vaccines and Related Biological Products Advisory Committee regarding adverse events deaths and or injuries caused by investigatory vaccines for the prevention or treatment of SARS-CoV-2 and or COVID-19 currently produced by Pfizer Biotech, Moderna and or Johnson and Johnson. Now that committee we uh, sued for information about, quote, reviews and evaluates data concerning the safety, effectiveness and appropriate use of vaccines and related biological products, which are intended to use in the prevention, treatment or diagnosis of human diseases, and as required, any other products for which the Food and Drug Administration has regulatory responsibility. So we sued, we didn't get any information. What are they hiding? Americans, as I said, have a fundamental right to know about all, any, and all safety issues tied to the COVID vaccines. And the government's unlawful stonewall on this issue suggests they have something to hide. Do you agree? So we'll see where this lawsuit goes, but we are not going to stop. Now you may question, well, maybe they're not, maybe they don't have anything. Well, of course they always have something, but we already have an admission. And this is a story, I think three or four weeks ago in the New York times that they had been withholding certain COVID vaccine data. I don't think it was necessarily adverse events, but maybe it was. Maybe it was something having to do with deaths from COVID from people who are vaccinated. And they were purposely withholding the data because they made the political decision that if the data came, through, came out, the American people might misinterpret the safety and efficacy of the vaccines. They told the New York Times that. So they admit they're withholding material that we have a right to see concerning our health, safety, and welfare for political reasons. Thank God we're in court over this. You know, one of the other outrages of the COVID lockdowns and restrictions is the, um, you know, you've seen story after story where usually left-wing politicians impose dragonian measures restricting the liberty of American citizens and they violate those measures with impunity. They go to events, they don't wear masks. They may have seen Nancy Pelosi in a small business in San Francisco, the hairdresser that was most famous, where she wasn't wearing a mask. And our question is, what other rules apply to us, but not to them? Rules for me and not for thee. That's the approach on COVID restrictions for too many bureaucrats and politicians. We filed a Freedom of Information Act lawsuit against the State Department for all documents related to national interest travel exemptions from the Biden administration to federal employees and their families related to the COVID-19 pandemic. So this is interesting. Now, in January, just soon as almost as soon as he got into office, President ja- uh, it was January 2021, uh, President Biden issued a presidential proclamation prohibiting the entry of non-residents to America if they had been in the, um, uh, I guess, an area in China. I don't know how to pronounce it, so I'm not going to say it. The United Kingdom, the Republic of Ireland, Brazil, and the Republic of South Africa in 14 days prior. Uh, The stated objective of this order was to prevent further spread of COVID-19. On on April 30th, he extended the proclamation to cover those who had been in the Republic of India. So this was a big deal. Now, if you recall, Trump was called a racist for doing things like this, but, uh, but that's a whole other matter. Now, what's the impact of these types of restrictions? Uh, and at this late stage, I think those, those restrictions are silly. Uh, but either way, these directors would have potentially caused, I don't know, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of Americans to be separated from loved ones abroad. So the question is, could federal employees uh, use their positions and connections to circumvent the, the travel bans by obtaining national interest exemptions? So basically a waiver that wouldn't be available to the typical American, but to likely a government employee. So this is what we do. This is our thinking that we're kind of, we're very careful about our FOIA requests. Uh, we, we usually go in saying, what is it that's interesting here? And let's figure out a request to get access to it. And what we thought was interesting here was to say, let's get some information and statistics regarding the total number of NIE employee requests, national interest exemption requests, made during the public health emergency from federal and non-federal employees, as well as the number of rejections and approvals, approvals of these requests. So we've got this thesis, let's figure it out. Let's get the data and see what conclusions we can draw. In many ways, that's kind of like science, isn't it, right? So the FOIA science led us to file this FOIA request for that type of information. And of course, it, the government being the government, they don't care. They don't want to ret- respond to this basic information. Uh, you know, and it's not a lot of material we're asking for. It's only two years of material. How many exemptions could have been, requ- been, it could have been dealt with here? I don't think that many. Where there shouldn't have been a lot. So again, it suggests they have something to hide. As I've said, COVID restrictions have too often ignored by government officials and Americans have a right to know federal employees use their positions of power to see their families when others could not. So that's why we filed this FOIA lawsuit and I think it's a great little lawsuit and I'm looking forward to getting the information and I suspect we're gonna get the information because there's really no good reason to withhold it, Uh, but they will stonewall, but we're gonna keep on pushing on, pushing on on this. So I'm gonna give you a report also on another lawsuit we filed, but we had already filed this one so I don't need to announce the announcement of the lawsuit but uh, we have gotten more documents. And this lawsuit, it was another uh, scorcher of a lawsuit. We filed asking for records of uh, any and all emails sent to and from director Francis Collins, he was then NIH director, related to gain of function, hydroxychloroquine, HCQ, and or Wuhan Institute of Virology. So you can imagine those emails might be very interesting. Now NIH director Collins, uh, I think it was technically a uh, senior uh, in the bureaucracy to Dr. Fauci. So we could get lots of interesting emails there, and we've gotten some interesting emails previously from this lawsuit. In June 2020, an email from current acting director of NIH, Lawrence Tabak, Tabak T-A-B-A-K, uh, he, he writes to uh, Dr. Collins about an NIH sponsored randomized control trial of the effectiveness of using hydroxychloroquine to treat patients hospitalized with COVID-19. Based on the recommendations from uh, this monitoring board that meant today, he writes, uh, they're gonna stop the trial. The randomized controlled trial comparing hydroxychloroquine versus placebo standard care in hospitalized patients with concern, confirmed SARS CoV 2 infection. Again, this is early on, relatively speaking, unfortunately, in the pandemic. It was in June of 2020. This was a scheduled interim analysis, actually the fourth in a series looking at both safety and outcomes. Bottom line, there was no harm signal. So uh, it seemed to suggest, and this was something that was emphasized in the original, However, based on the conditional power analysis, there is less than a 1% probability that HCQ would prove more effective than standard of care, even if we enrolled twice the number of patients. Therefore, we're concurring with the recommendation and stopping the trial, okay? So they found that there were no result, there were, given the results, there, were no need, there was no need to continue the study. So Collins replies and copies Dr. Fauci in the reply and says, well, that fits with the outcome of the recovery trial. Again, that emphasis was in the original. I hope uh, the agency will publish these results quickly. And uh, he says he's looping in in Tony. And Tony Fauci responds the next day, the same day says, thanks. Not unexpected, but good to have solid evidence behind our recommendations. We now need results of the trials for prophylaxis. So isn't that interesting? It just hit me reading that quote. They make recommendations, and then they seek the evidence for the recommendations. Isn't that curious? The other, big deal in the in the documents and there's some other documents about this is that you had a letter from a group of democratic congressmen complaining about the decision to cut off uh, cut off eco health alliance from funding so despite even then there was news coming out about EcoHealth health alliance's potential role in gain of function research contrary to the public interest in the least you had democrats in congress sending a letter pushing for more funding or continued funding or renewed funding for that group. Now EcoHealth Alliance had been funding uh, work at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Judicial Watch separately had uncovered records showing that Fauci knew and other folks knew in those agencies that that, found that, that, um, that work was gain of function. We have got the documents, we have the receipts. So these this is just kind of an example of information that's important for the American people to have. It would have been nice to know that they had done a study that found that hydroxychloroquine had there was no harm signal, but they didn't have enough information or that it was, it was uh, obviously wasn't working so they stopped the study. Why is it that we had to sue to get this information? And why is it taking forever and a day to get at it? Because we sued for these records uh, in um, last year, after they refused to respond to a request we asked for in June, for uh, on on this topic. So it should have take over almost a year to get this basic information. And I don't know about you, but I oppose. Uh, the government slow, the, slow uh, excuse me, slow-rolling the release of documents about COVID, Wuhan, and gain-of-function research. I mean, we have separate lawsuits against Fauci's agency. Why didn't we get this email already? At this rate, Fauci will be long retired before we even get a partial accounting of his and other activities. Boy. There is a lot going on at Judicial Watch, don't you agree? Election integrity, COVID, suing the judiciary, highlighting uh, the leftist assault on the rule of law in our Supreme Court. There are few doing. There's few doing as much as Judicial Watch in these areas. And as I said, I encourage you to support Judicial Watch. We can't do it without the support of the American people. We rely on your support to do this good work. And if you think this work is important, not only do I encourage you to support this work, I encourage you to tell other people to support this work and share information that I'm sharing with you, with others, in your, with your family and your friends. So uh, we will b- succeed and do more and do better with more support from you and other American citizens. And with that, I'll see you here next time on the Judicial Watch Weekly Update. Thanks for listening to the Judicial Watch Weekly Update with Tom Fitton. For more information, visit www.judicialwatch.org because no one is above the law.